take your Bible with me and turn to uh, the Gospel of John? We're headed back here. It's been a few weeks since, we, since we've been in John's Gospel, but we're headed back, uh, and we're going to finish up the prologue, I think, before the end of 2020. Um, we have a few weeks here to go, uh, and then we'll hit Advent, uh, I think, in like four weeks, five weeks, uh, no, four weeks, yeah, from today. Doesn't matter. We can do the math later. Uh, John chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 here in John chapter 1, in John's prologue. But as we've been doing, as we've been looking at John's prologue, I want to read the whole thing just so that we have uh, John's argument in this robust theological section of text firmly in front of us. Uh, as we study it together. John chapter 1, I'm just going to begin in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's, right, at the Father's side. He has made him known. When I switched over from elementary school to middle school, I actually went from a small-ish private school into uh, the public school system, a very large public school setting. And uh, that was a completely different experience for me entirely. And I think the biggest contrast came on the bus, on the school bus. Uh, I remember sitting down on the bus the first day of middle school and reading a big sign that said, uh, well, the bus driver was playing smash mouth at incredibly just huge volumes that is probably contributing to hearing loss at my age. But the sign that was on the bus in all capital letters read, riding the bus is a privilege, not a right. And I was like, I don't know what that means. I'm in sixth grade. What is that about? And I didn't understand what it meant until uh, we sat down, I don't know, that first week and, and watched the bus safety video. And then they explained it. They said, if you act like a hooligan, you're going to get kicked off the bus, basically. 
Riding the bus was a right because riding the bus is contingent on good behavior, following the, the rules. Those who don't follow the rules have to find another way to get to school at the expense of their, their parents. And in order uh, for something to be a right, like riding the bus in this instance, there needs to be something within a person that grants that right. Something that the bus driver couldn't write down on a form and say, here you go, you're no longer allowed or welcome to ride the bus. We see this in the, the formational documents of our country, right? The first 10 amendments to the Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. And uh, in, that first, in that first amendment, uh, it just reads this. It reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So essentially, the government can't tell you uh, what to believe and how to practice that belief. The government can't promote one religious belief over, over another or stop individuals from practicing what they believe freely. The government can't tell you what to say or how to say it. The government can't tell people what they can and cannot publish for the public to read. The government can't tell people that they have no ability to assemble or gather peacefully. And the government needs to listen to the people when they are wronged by laws or policies established by the government. Now, this, just in that First Amendment, in the Bill of Rights, this is a, a brilliant list of, of things to establish a, a nation on. I'm sure we could d- discuss for hours, especially in, a, a, in an election season, how politicians are probably currently violating or advocating for the violation of some of those rights. But that's not what we're doing here this morning. We want to hone in on this idea of, of rights. The reason this is important is because these rights established by the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States is that every United States citizen possesses these rights. Something inside of them, not just, not just because of their good behavior, but they get to participate as in all of these things because they are a United States citizen. So the point is this. If something is a right, it has to do with something internal, something in identity. In order for the First Amendment to apply to you, you have to be a United States citizen. That's an identity question. Similarly here, in John's Gospel, in the prologue, in these first 18 verses, we see a right given to men and women through Jesus Christ. The right, what John writes in verse 12, to become children of God. This right is even better than the rights granted in the First Amendment, or the Amendments 1 through 10. Because it establishes benefits for us, as those who are in Christ, that are not subject to the rise and fall of governments. They're not subject to Supreme Court rulings. And they're not subject to interpretation issues. Rather, the benefits of God given to us in Jesus Christ are wrapped up in the very person of God himself, who is not bothered by political and national upheaval, who is the judge of all people, and who is, in fact, his own interpreter. And so this text 
is not, however, about the benefits of being God's child. We'll we'll get to that later, and we'll unpack throughout John's gospel the benefits of being called a child of God. This is more about how one becomes a child of God. It's an introduction to this theme that will run like a river through this book and that will dip our toes in regularly. This theme is new birth. New birth. And so far in John's gospel, we've learned that Jesus is eternal. He exists in perfect relationship with God. He is God. Jesus is God's sovereign self-expression. He is the power behind all of creation. He is the source of all life. He is God's perfect plan to redeem his people. And God has designated men and women like John the Baptist to point to Jesus. But now we learn in the beginning of verse 9 that Jesus was coming into the world. So far we haven't seen that. All we've seen is a, a, a base understanding of who Jesus Christ is. But now when we get to verse 9, we see something of an understanding of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ was going to take on flesh and come into the earth, and more on that in verse 14. But Jesus Christ was going to come to his, to his people. He was coming into the world. He left the comforts of heaven and came to earth with a specific mission. And that's what will drive our exploration of these verses. So the first thing I want you to note in verses 9 through 13, the true light was coming, or which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and, to his, own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the first thing I want you to note is right away in that verse, Jesus came to a world who did not know him. Look at verse 9 again. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So, verse 9 tells us that Jesus is coming into the world, and we're told here that Jesus is the true light. Now, this is a theme that we've already seen back in verse 5, but Jesus is the true light. He's the only way, or he is the way through which God is going to redeem his people. He's the true light because there will always be things that will claim to be the light which aren't the light. That's why John says he is the true light. Light, But Jesus, what he does by coming into the world, exposes these things as false. He exposes these things as false substitutes. Jesus is the light that shines and exposes the things that you and I might be tempted to trust in or believe can make us right with God. This is one of the things that Jesus clearly does and what John the gospel writer wants us to understand is that Jesus came to expose the things that we are tempted to trust in to make us right with God, like working hard and being kind, or like keeping the rules really well, or like giving our kids certain opportunities, or like achieving a particular financial status, or 
living under some moral code. These are things that we typically, as people in the 21st century, rely on to make us right with God. But Jesus quickly exposes all of those things as as false. They cannot make us right with God. Jesus is the light that exposes these things. Whatever you might be trusting in, he exposes it as unable to, in fact, make you right with God. So this is what Jesus came into the world to do. When you read your Bible or you hear a sermon preached or you, uh, you attend a Bible study, Jesus is standing as a shining light, exposing things that you want to trust in other than him. And I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why we find it so hard to spend time in God's word regularly is because there's friction involved. Because it's showing us, it, it actively displays to us things that we trust that aren't Jesus Christ. It's hard to regularly attend church or find small group study to, or to study the Bible together. Because in those moments and in those spaces, we are actually being exposed. when we want to trust in our achievements and accomplishments and merits. But when we hold those things up, which the Bible does so often, to the person of Jesus Christ, they're actually proven to be terrible and totally insufficient to make us right with God. And so we as people would rather slink around in the darkness because we'd rather not be exposed for what we really are. When my wife points out to me uh, sin, in my life, I can confess and ask for forgiveness from her and from God, or I can double down, which I do far too often. I can double down and ignore the damage I've done. And the question is a simple one, right? Which one is better? We know that the first one, confessing, asking forgiveness, this is, this is, a, is repairing relationship, restoring it. Doubling down and ignoring damage done only drives us further apart. The same question could be applied here when we ask, when Jesus exposes us, when we go to God's word and Jesus stands as a shining light showing us the things that, that, uh, that we're trusting in to make us right with God, uh, we find ourselves at a crossroads. Will we either run to him or will we run away from him? He welcomes us in, and yet when we look at our sin and we say, hey, this is, this is something that I really enjoy. It's something that, that, that isn't that bad, right? And when it gets exposed by Jesus, we see how terrible it in fact is at making us right with God, and we run to him, or we should, because that's the better of the two options. The reality is, whenever we go to God's word, whenever you hear the word preached, whenever you study the word for yourself or with other people, you can't remain neutral. It stands as exposing and it stands as a shining light because Jesus is the true light. He exposes not just a few, but John says that, he, uh, that Jesus gives light to everyone. He exposes everyone and everything in them that they are trusting in that isn't him. This exposure didn't come into the world that knew him, though. And so when it happened, 
It was a shock. It was a substantial surprise. He came into the world that even though he made it, did not know him. And what would come as a surprise to first century readers is that Jesus' own people, and this is our next point, the Jewish nation would in fact refuse him. They would in fact refuse Jesus. And, And so we see, this is our second point this morning, we see that Jesus was rejected by his own people. If you go down to verse 11 now. John writes, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Simple. The exposure that Jesus brought, the light that he shined, the true light brought, brought, brought into the world, he drove his own people, the Jewish nation, to largely, instead of look at their sin, look at the things that they were trusting at and turn away from those things and move towards Jesus, instead of doing that, it caused the majority, to double down on what they would believe was their source of salvation. And there was something that John wants to address right here in these verses as something that Jesus' own people wanted to trust in more than him. And it was their heritage, their bloodlines. Abraham was their father. When God promised Abraham that he would make his descendants as many as stars in the sky, these men and women said, that's us. That's us. Abraham was their father according to blood. But in chapter 8 of John's gospel, we'll get there in like four years. Chapter 8, we'll see Jesus confront the religious leadership. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to take him out. And Jesus knows this. He knows that they're trying to kill him. And they demand, the religious leadership demands that they came from Abraham's line. They were justified in their actions. But Jesus quickly flips the script on them and says, if they were truly children of Abraham, they would, not be do- they would, they would in fact be doing the works of Abraham, which was living by faith. But instead, they were plotting murder. And that makes them not Abraham's kids, but the children of Satan. These are Jesus' words. They were children of, Jesus says, their father, the devil. Jesus is saying, their bloodlines, your heritage, it can't save you. Even though the same blood flows through your veins that flowed through Abraham's veins, it can't save you. The the Jewish nation largely looked to their biological connection to Abraham as their source of salvation. Friends, we do similar things. It may not be that, we may not be several thousand years removed, but we do similar things. Men and women all the time appeal to their upbringing as their source of salvation. If you ask someone the question, how do you know, how do you know that you're going to spend eternity with God? Say, well, I grew up a Christian. But just because your parents raised you in a godly way doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And no matter how hard you try as a parent, you cannot will your kids into the kingdom of heaven. No matter how much you appeal to the faith of your parents, you will go to hell if that faith isn't yours. The Jews did this. They appealed to Abraham's faith. 
but they did not believe in Jesus who stood before them, who is the one who Abraham trusted that God would provide. That made them Satan's kids, not Abraham's. So the takeaway is clear. Don't appeal to your last name. Don't appeal to your last name. No matter how much credibility it brings in the community, no matter how much you think it earns you rights, Jesus exposes it as an illegitimate way to be right with God. God is impartial to your last name. An appeal to your last name over the name of Jesus ensures that you are not God's child, but Satan's. But consider the good news then that we see in verses 12 and 13. When Jesus comes into the world as the true light and is exposing all of these things that we want to trust in that can't save us, Jesus then gives us the way. Jesus grants us what we need to be God's children. New birth. This is, this is the theme that we're going to see run so clearly through John's gospel. Verse 12, but, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is where our conversation about rights becomes important. But to all who did receive him, John says, or believed in his name, he's saying the same thing, those who received him believed in his name. Now hold up, because we're going to see this language a lot in John's gospel. To receive him, to believe in his name, these two terms have been watered down quite a bit in our Christian culture. But through these verses, we might be tempted to view Jesus as a beggar, knocking at the door, saying, please let me in. We talk about receiving Jesus as if it depends on us. And like, like we stand there, we're like, okay, Jesus, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, guess I'll let you in. Rather, though, in John's gospel, these words, receiving and believing, they're both an acknowledgement that Jesus is all of the things that John says and that he deserves your unwavering allegiance by a and through a life that is informed in every way by the person of Jesus Christ. This is what receiving and believing means. It's not a one-and-done prayer. It's not a pay homage to Jesus Christ by setting foot in a church once in a while. Jesus is eternal. He exists in perfect relationship with God, and he is God. Jesus is sovereign, God's sovereign self-expression. He is the power behind all of creation. He is the source of all life. He is God's perfect plan to redeem himself, or redeem us, his people. And if that is his resume, why would we treat him like a beggar knocking at the door? The Jewish people didn't take Jesus as these things. His own people didn't take him as these things. But through the full acknowledgement, both in attitude and action, that this is who Jesus is, all kinds of people, all kinds of people are given the right to become God's children. Jews and non-Jews alike, men and women alike. 
We're going to see this beautiful contrast in chapter 3 and then chapter 4 between this religious leader who approaches Jesus at night and asks him, what do I need to do? And Jesus is going to tell him about new birth. And then we see, in contrast, in the middle of the day, at the noon hour, a woman outside of the people of God, standing at the well because she was shamed by her society because of all of the immoral decisions that she had made. And Jesus stands there and gives her the same truth. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jews and non-Jews alike, men and women alike, white-collar and blue-collar alike, Republican and Democrats alike, capitalists and socialists alike. To all who did receive him. If any of those things made you go, ah, it's because you're probably trusting in that. And Jesus Christ in this moment is exposing it as something that you're trusting in outside of him as a source of your salvation to make you right with God. So we find that being part of God's family, being a child of God, doesn't rely on the things that we regularly wanted to. Jesus exposes the things that we want to trust in that aren't him. And the call is to run to him as the only one who can make us right with God. And it changes our family dynamics. Because if you are in Christ, if you've been born again, and you, have more, you then have more in common with a believer in China than you do with your unbelieving biological brother. You have more in common with a left-leaning California resident than you do your unbelieving cousin who is a registered Republican. You have more in common than the thief on the cross next to Jesus than with your morally upstanding uncle who does not believe in the name of Jesus. The old expression goes, blood is thicker than water. Meaning that our family ties are the strongest bonds that we have. But what John describes here is even thicker than blood. Because the birth that defines you, if you are in Christ, the birth that defines you didn't come from your biological mother, but from God. My wife has given birth to five kids, and Lord willing, she'll give birth to number six in April. My wife has, been, has sacrificed a ton to have five, soon to be six kids. She's endured intense suffering, many sleepless nights, sacrificed a ton of me time and peace and quiet. (laughs) And she's done it to the glory of God because she doesn't consider the birth that she gave to our kids to be anything compared to the new birth they need that only God can give them. So there's a clear implication here You and I are given the right. Friends, you and I are given the right to become children of God through new birth. That is not brought about by our family name or physical birth or the the resolve of any man, but rather is brought about by God's 
gracious will through faith in Jesus Christ. This is an identity that can't be taken away from you. Nothing can change who gave birth to you biologically, and nothing can change or nullify the birth that you have received if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think this gives us one really important action point this morning. This is where I'll leave you. And it's considering our family dynamics. If the most important birth that we've received is not biological, but which spiritual, but this is, and this is exactly what this text is about. The most important birth that you've received, if you are in Christ, is not biological, but spiritual. I'm not, I'm not stretching here. If we look at John chapter 3, uh, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That which is born is flesh is born into sin, which leads to death. But that which is born of God will endure for all of eternity. So I'm not stretching here by making the statement. If the most important birth we've received is not biological, but spiritual, then that should radically change the way we think about men and women around us in the local church. Many churches find themselves in a place where people care only about the logistics of an event or the purchase of a building or renovation or weekly attendance numbers, and they beat one another up verbally, and, and they slander one another, and it looks like a cutthroat, open, winner-take-all cage match more than it looks like the worship of the God of the universe. But this isn't the way things ought to be in church in light of John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Paul talks about the dynamics of the church in this way. First Timothy, he's writing to his protege, Timothy, his, his disciple, a young man at this time. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The reason Paul can liken relationships to the church to family members is because they are family members. Not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so this is freedom that comes through experiencing new birth and being brought into the family of God. This is the right that you've received as a child of God. It's the right or the freedom to care for an aging church member who is diagnosed with dementia like we would a parent. It's the freedom to sit and to cry with a church member who has lost a child and suffered a miscarriage like we would a sister. It's the right or the freedom to celebrate with a church member who receives a promotion at work like we would a brother. It's the freedom to slow down and listen to a fellow church member recount a life well lived like we would a grandparent. It's the freedom to consider the challenges of schooling that it presents a student and a schedule and education modified by a global pandemic like we would a son or a daughter. New birth gives us the freedom to do what Paul writes about in Galatians 6. And he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Friends, you have 
an opportunity and the right through new birth. You've been given this right to become God's child and you are freely welcomed into the household of faith. It is your birthright to do good to everyone, especially those God has called his own. Let's pray.